I want you to take a moment, first of all, before we actually get into this lesson. Just take in where you are. I mean, most of you, I guess, have not experienced an Easter service on a little island, sitting underneath coconut trees, looking at the vastness of the water that covers 71% of our planet, feeling the breeze, forget the sounds of the sirens and the road and everything, but just try and take in where you're at and forget the dog bark, (laughs) but just look at this. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Easter for me was always getting up early before we always, the church I went to, we always had breakfast at church before sunrise and my dad would get up drag me along and uh, let everybody else in the house sleep but he dragged me along to set up chairs and tables while he started cooking breakfast for everybody and then people would come into the church honk honk and people would come into the church and we would have our worship service that morning right after having breakfast together we'd go upstairs Um, out of the fellowship room, and we would have our breakfast. And that's how Easter was. And I remember sometimes it even snowing on Easter. And um, when I got in high school, things changed. Because, as most of you know, I used to live in the Bahamas. I had relatives in Bahamas. And so I would come down to the Bahamas, down to Nassau, every Easter. I would come down there. And all four years of college was down there at Easter. Um, one holiday, I always went down to the tropics. For one, I hate winter snow, ice. Some of you know that. I am not a winter person. This is my kind of climate. I love this. And I always associate Easter pretty much because most of my memories of Easter, considering I've done these for over 35 years, I mean, there's, I associate Easter with coconut trees, you know, like a beach, the sand, the tropical breeze and seeing the water and sometimes when we sing these songs that we've been singing this this week when we're back home in the states and sitting inside of some concrete shell some man-made structure and you know we're we're singing and praising god it just doesn't and we sing the same songs it just doesn't seem the same to me it, I, my mind always flicks back to this type of an environment whenever i sing some of those songs it just and it always does that. And I know Michaela, who was raised on this trip, um, this is how it is with her. Um, the few times we have not been able to come down on Easter, usually because I was klutzy and did something and had to have surgery or something and we couldn't go, um, and we're stuck with being up there, it's just not the same. We sit around and we mope like, this is just not Easter. It's not coconut trees and everything. So just take in what this is like. Because, I don't know, some of you may never experience something like this again in your life. And I, I would hate that to happen, but um, because of that, really treasure the moment that you're in right now. Well, 
with that, let's get into our lesson. And um, what we're going to be talking about today is, of course, the resurrection. Um, I mean, in the um, Western culture, this is Easter. If Eastern Orthodox, it happens next weekend. But um, in this culture here in the United States, mostly this is Easter. Um, and we had Good Friday and stuff like this. But anyway, there have been many critics that say that, you know, the, the resurrection is totally a myth. Not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection in particular, they will say that. And I have, over the years of my, um, my life, starting in the 1990s, I started actually asking questions. Actually, before that was when I was in high school. I can remember asking um, somebody specifically who did not believe in the resurrection, um, why don't you believe in a resurrection? When I was in high school, I had a friend who was an Orthodox Jew, and his name was Steve. Steve and I were good friends. We talked frequently. Um, I was a Christian. He was Orthodox Jew, and we often discussed things. And I remember when it came up um, one day, uh, I don't know if I was getting ready to leave for the Bahamas or whatever, but I remember sitting at lunch with him, and I asked him, why don't you believe in the resurrection? And what he told me was, this is what he said. He said, because the resurrection never occurred. He says, you Christians do not realize that we Jews have the body of Jesus. It's in a stone vault in Israel. And we have his body. He was never resurrected. And he says, I don't know why you Christians keep insisting that he was resurrected because he's not. We have his skeleton. I sat there sort of perplexed and puzzled for a moment. And then I said to him, well, since you guys don't like, you know, Christianity, I said, why don't you just pull the body out of the tomb and show the world? Because that will destroy Christianity once and for all. It's not the empty tomb that makes Christianity. It's the, the people seeing the risen Lord, that Jesus is alive. That is the foundation of Christianity. He died for our sins. But he rose again, proving that we can have eternal life. And he lives forever, and he's alive today. So I said, Steve, just pull out the body, and everybody will shut up. I said, do you realize if you go back to your synagogue and you tell your rabbi you could do that, you could totally wipe Christianity off the planet? He didn't have any response from me. He just sat there totally perplexed, like he didn't know what to say at all. He'd never had anybody ask him or tell him anything like that, I guess. But... Over the years, particularly in the 1990s, I would have many conversations. In the latter 80s, early 90s is when I worked um, in research, and I, taught, I worked with a lot of non-Christian biologists um, and scientists, and I've taught schools, public schools. I've taught in public and Christian schools, and I've homeschooled my, two of my kids. And, and so I've spent a lot of time with a lot of people. And I often like to ask the question, not just at Easter, but I like to ask the question, why don't you believe in the resurrection? Because that's the pivotal thing. This is the pivotal part of history that we talked about yesterday. Everything hinges in human history upon the life of Jesus. Not just his birth, his death, but his resurrection is pivotal in time. So much we, we determine time by this. Events and stuff, either before or after the time of Jesus' life. So, I started asking people, why don't you believe in the resurrection? Like I did Steve. So Steve, and Steve's not the only person who has said that. I've come across other Jews that have told me the same thing. But I have, what I've done is I have compiled throughout time. When somebody would give me an excuse, I would write it down. 
days before computers, I actually kept a little notepad like in my Bible and I would write things like this down. When I got a computer in the computer age and I started working in the 1990s and we had computers in our room um, I, and I had one at home, I started putting this into a file. Taking the excuses that people have of a reason not to believe in the resurrection. And basically, out of everybody, the, the probably maybe thousand or more people I've talked to about this and asked that question, I have, I can whittle down all their answers basically into about six, about six reasons that people come up with. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Are these valid reasons? Are they valid reasons to believe in this? So, first of all, as we get into this, you got to understand, according to biblical law, going back in the Torah, the Old Testament law, for something to be verified as legal, like in a court or something, you had to have two witnesses. Particularly, it had to be two male witnesses. And two men had to witness the event. So if you're going to rob a bank or something like that, if you just have one person say he saw you do it, that wouldn't be enough to have you convicted. You had to have somebody else see you. Um, if you murdered somebody, you have to have somebody else. There's got to be two witnesses in the Jewish system to be legal. And so it's, it's really interesting because um, if you think about and read the, the gospel accounts, Jesus first appeared to women. But then what did they do? They went to two of Jesus's disciples, Peter and John, to go see that the tomb was empty and stuff. Thus, we have two men to make this a legal documentation. Now, remember I told you last night, the trial of Jesus was all illegal, all six trials that they had him go through. This, though, is legal. God is pursuing the legality of what his word is, and God can't break his word. So if there has to be two male witnesses, he has two male witnesses right there at the start of the thing. So two of them go there. Um, And the thing is, it's just not two. I'm just talking about the first two men. Because if you go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you read verses 4 through 8. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. And by the way, if you don't know, Paul was originally named Saul, who was not a Christian. He was so anti-Christian, he murdered Christians. He hated the thought of Jesus, and he did everything in his human power to stop Christianity in its tracks. This is the same guy who becomes a Christian, and how he became a Christian, it wasn't the empty tomb that convinced him. It was seeing the risen Lord. But he writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he writes in 1 Corinthians about the legal witnesses to make that that this really did occur. And I read, this is out of God's Word translation. I read, I pass on to you the most important points of doctrine that I have received. Stop right there. This is Paul giving us the most important piece of doctrine. And it goes, Christ died to take away our sins as scriptures predicted. Stop there. That's what we talked about last night. Continuing. He was placed in a tomb. We mentioned that last night. He was brought back to life. Here we go. On the third day, as the scriptures predicted, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. He appeared to Cephas. Next, he appeared to the 12 disciples. Remember, you only need two. Now we have 12 men. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one 
time. Make this legal? Wow. And most of these people are still living. Some have died by the time he wrote this. Some have died. But most are still living. In other words, if you don't believe what I'm saying, go check. Here's, he even records many names and stuff. Go check. Get their eyewitness account. Then it says, next he appeared to James. Now, why would Paul make this? James was the brother of Christ. That brother, be technical. James was a skeptic. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not like his brother. He was not in favor of him going around embarrassing the family, calling himself the Messiah. He was so anti-Jesus, you couldn't get somebody more anti-Jesus. Yet Paul says, next, Jesus appeared to James. It's so funny because throughout, it's sort of like a commercial on TV. Uh, Jesus goes up before his crucifixion, goes up to James. Do you believe me now? And he would say, no. Do you believe me now? No. Believe me now? No. After the resurrection, goes up to James. you believe me now? Yeah. Because <laughs> he can see the wounds. He can see his stepbrother who now has risen from the dead. So next he appeared to James. He also appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. Did you know that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus alive? If you go into a bank and rob a bank, and there's over 500 people who pick you out of a lineup of people that you did it, your fate has sealed. You're going to be convicted because that is a lot of people. In Jewish law, it only required two. God gave us over 500. That's an amazing thing. And as I told you before in some of the earlier lessons, this is just not done by Christians talking because, oh, yes, Christians are biased. We're going to say that, of course. But non-Christians have verified this. Historical writers of the Roman Empire, I mentioned many of them last night and the night before, these people wrote about this happening also. Um, so there, there's been a lot of these. It is a legal event. So now that we've got that established, let's go back to what I started with. What are the excuses that people have given me? And I'll tell you, I've heard some doozies. But basically, they come down into six. And the first one is like what Steve, my friend in high school, said. The, the first um, excuse, a lot of, um, mostly Jews use this. They say that the Jews hid the body. That they crucified Jesus, yes, but then we hid the body. That's what Steve was saying. We hid the body. It's in a different place, uh, so Christians couldn't find it. That's why I don't believe in the resurrection, because Jesus' body is in a tomb someplace and we Jews have it hidden. Really? That is the most illogical statement you can think of, because the Jews at the time of Christ and stuff wanted to put down Christianity, particularly at Pentecost when everybody is there for that major holiday. Millions of people are in Jerusalem for that celebration, and that's when the Holy Spirit came down and the church is born right there. Um, all these people are standing there. Peter gets up and he does a sermon and people ask, what must we do to be saved? He tells them and then they spend a lot of time on the south side of the Temple Mount doing baptisms and stuff because people are being saved. The Jews are standing there watching all this. They don't like what's going on. If they hid the body, why didn't they just pull the body out of the tomb, bring it up, stick it in the middle of Jerusalem and say, see what the disciples are saying is a lie? But they didn't do that. If you read through the scriptures, you'll notice something. The most eerie silence in all of scripture, the Jewish scribes, the priests, the people who condemn Jesus are silent. They don't say a word. No, they do not have 
the body. That, that is so illogical because if the body was alive to, or around today, like I told Steve, just bring it out. The Jews could stop Christianity. If someone could find the body of Jesus, Christianity is no longer valid. It's been 2,000 years, folks. And I have personally been in the tomb of Jesus many times, and I can tell you, he ain't in there. Oh, if you go to the tomb of Muhammad, guess what? He's in there. You go to the tomb of Buddha, guess what? He's in there. You go to the tomb of any of these Vedas leaders and gurus and stuff like that, guess what? They're in there. But I have been in the tomb of Jesus Christ. I have placed my hands on the burial bench. And I can tell you, in all honesty, he ain't in there. A second thing that people come up with, this one is actually one that I, I hear a lot, and um, it's one of the most common ones that have gone on. The, the disciples, they stole the body, and then they just lied about this whole thing. I remember having a discussion one time with a bunch of teachers at a school, very, very intelligent people, and I, we got on this topic, and I asked them, I said, well, why? they said, why are you a Christian? I said, well, why aren't you? I said, let me just, let's just get it down to one thing. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I said, you guys don't. How do you explain the empty tomb? And they, what they were standing here as we were talking, they said, well, the disciples, they stole the body, and then they just lied about it. I said, that is, you've got a serious problem with that theory. First of all, when Jesus died, as I told you last night, it was verified by Pilate, the governor. He ordered a centurion to go down and verify the death of Christ. They did. They stabbed him even. After they've nailed him and done everything else, they stab him in the heart to make sure that he's dead. Come back, they report to Pilate, he's dead. What does Pilate do next? Very soon after the burial, the Jewish priests and others come up and they say, this guy said he was going to rise from the dead. We don't want that to happen because somebody might steal the body. And they ask for Pilate to put a contingent of, of soldiers at the tomb. So trained Roman soldiers, fully armed, fully dressed for battle, are ordered to stand at the tomb. Not only that, it tells us in Scripture that Pilate sealed the tomb. That does not mean he went up with a caulking gun, went around the edges. That means that they put a cord, plaster on one side, plaster on the other, with a red cord with the Senus Populus Quae Romanus plaque on it, meaning that tomb now becomes the property of Rome. Anybody who breaks that, you are now guilty of breaking the laws and the state of Rome. That's a sign of rebellion, and that is crucifixion on a tall cross. And they'll try and keep you alive for a couple of days like that to draw out your agony. That was that. That tomb was sealed. Roman soldiers are there. The disciples, you're going to try and tell me the disciples, a bunch of untrained fishermen, they only had one sword among them. It was more like a dagger, probably. We can read about how well they were at sword play. Did you ever read what Peter did? Peter's excellent work of swordmanship when they came to arrest Jesus. Ah, Jesus, don't worry, I'll protect you. He pulls out the dagger, and as he starts to swing at the thing, the best he could do was cut off a guy named Malchus's ear. Yeah, that's a real trained soldier. Could you imagine 12 disciples with only one little like dagger going against like 16 Roman soldiers standing guard, and if they were to fall asleep or if they walk away, off with their head. They would be executed um, for leaving their post of duty. That's very serious. Even in the military today, you're caught uh, asleep on duty or something, that's court-martial offense. So you, <laughs> these, these disciples, these untrained fishermen, you're trying to tell me, go up, overpower 
16 or so Roman soldiers, beat them, knock them out, don't kill them because we had a report from them later, knock them out with their helmets on and all their armor and their shepherds or their fishermen's clothes. They open up the tomb. Now think about this. They open up the tomb. They go inside the tomb. There's the body of Jesus, which has been embalmed and wrapped up. They take the time to go ahead and unwrap the body, pick the body up, and then carefully, because it tells us the burial cloths were folded when the people came in. When the disciples came in, it was folded. So these thieves fold everything nicely and put it back in place on the table, carry the body out, and then make it off in the night with the Roman soldiers still knocked out. You really trying to get me to believe that? I mean, talk about illogical. I got robbed once when I lived in the Bahamas. Um, when I was teaching school, a robber came into my apartment trash the place like you wouldn't believe. I don't know if you guys have ever had that unfortunate event of being robbed, your house being robbed. I did. When I came in there, everything was scattered all over the place. No robber is going to go in, particularly when, it, when they got a short period of time, and mess everything up and then politely fold everything and put it back in the drawers and stuff. They don't do that. Jesus' body, everything was neatly arranged. You see how illogical this is? And you're going to try and tell me that a bunch of these fishermen were able to do this? And not only that, they all died under threat of extreme punishment, even crucifixion. And they willingly went to death. No one goes to death for a lie like that. They all went to death. Nobody ever renounced what they saw. They all said, even up to the point of death, I saw the living Christ. So that's a totally illogical claim. Yeah, 11 non-trained people taking on the Romans and beating them. And boy, they must be the neatest robbers there are too. Third, third response people sometimes get. Oh, I don't believe in the resurrection. Why? I think the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Okay, that's illogical. Because, for one... The high priests come up to Pilate and they ask Pilate to seal the tomb and to put a contingent of soldiers in front of it. Thus, the high priests and all the scribes know exactly where the tomb was. The Romans know where it's at. Pilate himself orders the Roman seal to be placed on the tomb. There is no question they know what tomb it is. Besides, if that was true that they went to the wrong tomb, the Jews obviously knew, these critics, the Romans knew. Why didn't they just, when Peter stands up and said the living, the, the, the Christ rose from the grave and his tomb is empty and we all saw him, why didn't the Jews just go over, open up the tomb, pull out the body again? They could have stopped this whole thing right there. But they were silent. Besides, Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in his tomb. Don't you think the guy would know where his tomb is? It costs a lot of money to build a tomb. Totally illogical. The next one. This one is sort of humorous, the way some people describe it. Well, I don't believe in the resurrection because I don't think Jesus died on the cross. I think he just fainted. Then, laying on the cool slab, he woke up, undressed himself, and walked out of the tomb. 
This is, the, this is more of a modern idea, but I'll tell you, this is the most ridiculous. I, I'm, I sometimes have to hold back laughter on this one. When you think about what they're saying. Okay, first of all, the Romans verified Jesus' death by having him stabbed in the heart with a spear. Okay, that's a fatal wound in itself. And also, the disciples claimed to see Jesus in Galilee. That's over 60 miles away. So after having the nails in his hands and his feet, being scourged like that, being stabbed in the heart, you think he just walked 60 miles up to Galilee? He couldn't have walked 10 steps after being crucified. Once you're crucified, you can't walk after your feet have been nailed like that. So that's not right. Romans were experts in death. They verified to Pilate. Pilate asked. Now, if that centurion lied, that could have been the centurion's head. He verified the death of Jesus by stabbing him. So he was stabbed in the heart. And like I say, if Jesus did wake up, he's bound. His hands are bound with sticky goo and stuff, but he's bound like this, all wrapped up. I want to know how he unwrapped himself and then so politely put everything back into order and then walked out of the tomb. And how did he move that stone, which was like a plug, not a big rolling stone like six feet high. That's not the way they were done in the first century. It was a small stone probably with a plug that you rolled it into place and shoved it with people helping you into space. I want to know how somebody having all those wounds is able to push that plug out, roll it, and then go walking out. And besides, why did the 16 soldiers stand there and just let this happen? See, this is totally illogical. A fifth reason, fifth excuse people will sometimes give. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I, I am trying my best not to laugh because people do believe in this. They say that the disciples were in grief and they were hallucinating. Okay. I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I have had enough psychology to know that hallucinations are not contagious. You have 500 people who verify they saw eight touched with Jesus. 500 people hallucinating at the same time. Um, I don't buy that. Oh, oh, people will say, well, they were in grief. It was grief. Paul wasn't in grief. He was happy about this. James was not in grief. He was happy about Jesus, his brother being killed, putting end to the shame of his family as he saw it. Yet these guys become, Paul becomes the greatest of the apostles. Uh, James becomes the first leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So hallucinate, they wouldn't be hallucinating. Why would they change? They have no interest in, in this whatsoever. What changed them was seeing the living Lord. So hallucinations, no. And then the sixth one. And this one gets a lot of, a lot of attention today too. Well, the four Gospels, because we have four Gospels, each Gospel has um, is not an exact copy of each other. Well, or I've had people say the four biographies of Jesus contradict each other on this. Okay, first of all, let me take you to school here. You've all read a biography? I mean, a true biography? If you ever notice a biography starts off like with the parents and it talks about the birth of the child, then it goes into the adolescence of the child, then it goes into finally, you know, it gets up to the uh, the teens, um, preteen, the teens, the um, young adult, the adult age, et cetera, et cetera. Which of the four Gospels contains all of that about Jesus? None of them. Gospel of, Jan- of John, over half that Gospel is dealing with just one week in his life. That is not a biography. 
Only two gospels mention his birth at all. That's Matthew and that is Luke. Mark doesn't even mention it, nor does John. I like how John starts off. He says, uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word became law. Uh, became God. And the thing is, you keep going down, and it says, and the Word became flesh. In other words, took on human form. The Word is Jesus. There's no birth recording uh, record in there. There's no genealogies or anything like that. See, the Gospels were not written, if you don't know this. They're not biographies. And there's a uh, problem that a lot of people make. Read any biography, study any type of biography. They do not meet the literary requirements of being a biography. Thus, what they are, they are portraits. They were prophesied that there would be four of these. It goes back to the first chapter of the book, Ezekiel, and also it is fulfilled in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 4. But the thing is, there would be four portraits. The Messiah would come fulfilling four basic roles, that he would be a king, that he would be a servant, that he would be a human, a man, and that he would be God. Matthew's gospel is written for that first prophecy that the Messiah would be a king. So he focuses on the kingship. Matthew's gospel is all about the kingship. You get the birth of the king. You have a king like Herod trying to kill a king. You have the wise men like we three kings of Orient. That's all found in Matthew. Jesus's discourse um, on the Sermon on the Mount is the most found in, uh, the most detailed is in Matthew. And he's talking about the kingdom of God is such. The kingdom of God is for. The kingdom of God is like. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. And at the end, he gives us the great commission. Who can give a commission? Kings give commissions. It's all on the kingship. Mark is all about, it's the shortest book on what Jesus says, but the most on what he did. We see Mark is writing the perspective that Jesus is the servant Messiah. He came to serve. There's no birth account. Who wants a birth account of a slave? A servant. That's not important. It's not going to be in there. So he focuses on the servant. Luke, who is a physician, he writes and tells us about how the Messiah will be human. He will be a man. Who better to write it than a physician? Of course, people are born. There we go. The genealogy found Luke goes all the way back to, to Adam, the first man. He focuses on the human emotions, the pathos of Jesus. He tells us about the hematidosis. He gives us details about um, the emotions of Jesus and the physical aspect because he's a physician. He's telling us he is totally human. Then you get to John. That's the last one here. And so his emphasis and portrait was about how the Messiah would be God. And John uses only seven miracles. He only he doesn't take any parables. There's no parables in that gospel. And he focuses primarily on these seven um, miracles and then the whole Passion Week, the whole week going up to the crucifixion um, and his resurrection. That's the focus of his book, proving that he is God. These four gospels were not meant to be carbon copies of each other. Why would we need four copies of the same book? It makes no logical sense. No, it has to do with a prophecy that we would have, the Messiah would be like a lion, he would be like an, an ox, he would be like a human, and he would be like an eagle, which is symbolic of, of the deities. That's who he is. Folks, the evidence is overwhelming. I don't know what you came here today and on this trip, what you were thinking about the resurrection, but the evidence is overwhelming. There is only one logical conclusion. Even if Spock was standing here with me, he would have to conclude the only logical solution is that he was resurrected. Because any, any other excuse you can come up with, 
If you study it carefully, you can take it apart. But most of them are based upon those that I just gave you. So where are you at with the resurrection? Do you understand what I'm asking you? If this is all really true, if Jesus says that he is the only way to get to heaven, that if your purpose in life is to worship and to serve God, why aren't you doing it? What does this really mean to you? Oh, I'm just going to try and ignore it. Really? How do you ignore this? Well, I don't want to live my life that way. Really? What does Jesus say is the result if you don't? How does this impact you? Some serious thinking here. I'm not going to conclude the service, but I'm going to just close this part in a prayer. And then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. So let's pray. Father God, I come before you right now and I ask that you help us to understand how serious this is. This is the pivotal point of time. And we can try to deny it all we want, but the fact is you did rise from the dead, proving exactly everything that you said as being true. Lord, if there's somebody sitting here or listening right now who has never accepted your free offer of grace, and what was your message, dear Jesus, when you're here was for us to repent, not to just ask forgiveness, but repent means to change our way of thinking, to change the way we live. As Jesus told the woman at the well, you said to her, go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that everybody who is listening has come to that part of their relationship with you, that they have repented, then they've asked for your forgiveness, and that they are now born-again Christians. If not, I pray that your Holy Spirit makes them so uncomfortable they can't really handle it. We thank you for what this day represents for us, why we celebrate it, and we ask you to continue to bless us here. In Jesus' name, amen.